If you have your Bible today, I wish you would open it to the book of Romans, chapter number five. We're going to be looking this morning at one of the greatest passages of Scripture in all the New Testament, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is one of those passages that we should return to over and over again because in these verses we read not only how to become a Christian, how to get saved, but we also learn the benefits of salvation. Some of you here today, and maybe you've not crossed over that line from darkness to light and from death to life, and you're thinking about becoming a Christian, and you're thinking about giving your heart to the Lord, and maybe you're wondering, uh, you know, what are the the benefits? What what would happen to me if I got saved? Well, this morning, we're going to get some of those questions answered in Romans chapter number five. Now, instead of just diving into the passage, which is something I would probably normally do, I want to kind of slowly wade into the waters a little bit today because I want us to study not only the passage, but I want us to do it in such a way that it will be memorable so that when we leave here in a little bit, we will be able to say, I not only understand how to be saved, I not only understand some of the benefits of salvation, but he laid it out there in a way that I can remember that, and as I go through this next week, I can think about that, and I can call that to mind. And so that's what I want to accomplish today. So like I say, I'm wading in instead of diving into the water. Now, quick question. How many football fans do we have in the room? Would you just raise your hand if you're a football fan? Well, for those of us who are, you know that this year's NFL playoffs have been very, very exciting. Now, it is true that the Texans just barely missed the playoffs this year, just barely, (laughs) but we missed it. And the Cowboys were one and done. And so maybe your favorite team, and Tom Brady got knocked out last week, who's my favorite, so I don't really care that much now what happens. But anyway, some of the games have been very good. And last weekend, of the four games, three of them were decided by last-second field goal. That's what ended the game. Now, if you are a, not only a fan of football, but kind of a follower, you try to keep up with what's going on, you know that back in 2015, the NFL made a decision, the rules committee made a decision that they were going to make the extra point more difficult. And so they backed it up. The line of scrimmage now is no longer the two-yard line. We're used to the kickers. It was just a chip shot. Seldom would any kicker ever miss an extra point prior to 2015. But they moved that line of scrimmage back to the 15-yard line so that now the extra point is a 32 or 33-yard kick. And when they did that, the percentage of made kicks went down. It's been interesting that we've seen in the NFL, and who knows, may see it today, that some really good kickers are missing extra points. And the reason is because it got moved back. Now, for me, this whole kicking thing is interesting because one of our members, Dustin Hopkins, is a kicker in the NFL. He now kicks for the Los Angeles Chargers. And so I guess knowing him and, and just the rules and everything, seeing how that's all changed, the extra point has become a very important part of the game. It is no longer automatic. You say, John, that's interesting, but I really don't care about the extra point in the NFL, where they kick from or what the percentage of missed kicks is. What does that have to do with your sermon? Well, think about this. In a football game, after a team scores a touchdown, what do they do? They kick the extra point. Now, in the spiritual life, the ultimate touchdown is when we get saved, right? When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then after that, 
the spiritual extra point. Now, we're going to get into the spiritual extra point, the PAT, the point after touchdown, in just a minute. But let's look in Romans chapter 5, first of all, at what I'm calling the greatest spiritual touchdown, the moment that you were saved. Paul says, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith. Now, that word justified is an interesting word. In Bible times, it was a legal word. A person would be brought into the courts and appear before the judge, and the judge would hear the case, and the judge would weigh the evidence, and many times the judge would say, this person is not guilty. They have not done what you have accused them of doing. And so, I am, the judge would say, from a legal sense, justifying this person. I am pronouncing this person not guilty. Now, this is the word that the Bible uses to describe our salvation. In the eyes of God, when a person gets saved, we are justified. Billy Graham used to say, it is just as if we had never sinned. When Jesus Christ comes into our heart and washes our sins away, you can think about all the sins you've committed from your childhood your teenage years, young adult life, and more recent sins. All of those sins, when you received Christ, were washed away, and you were pronounced not guilty. You were justified. But biblically, there's more to justification than just that, as great as that is. Biblically, when Paul says, having been justified by faith, what he's saying is, not only has God forgiven our sins, but now watch this, he has also covered us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so when you got saved, what did you do? You gave Jesus your sins, and you gave him your faith, and what did he do? He took that, and then he gave you his righteousness. It is the great exchange. I was thinking last week, how could I illustrate that in a more modern and contemporary setting so we could all kind of understand how that he's forgiven us, but he's also clothed us in his righteousness. I'm talking now about the heavenly father, right? Let me use my earthly father as an example to keep the father-child relationship. Let's just play like that I owed my dad a thousand dollars. Let's just play like that I owed him that, which by the way, I don't, okay? I don't owe him anything. But let's play like I owed him $1,000. And so I went to him a few weeks ago, and I said, hey, Dad, I've made some unwise financial decisions. I've got myself in a mess, and I've got bills coming due, and I need $1,000. Could you loan it to me? And he says, sure, no problem. He goes in the other room. He gets his checkbook. He writes me a check for $1,000, and I say to him, I'll pay you it back in one month. He says, you have a month. And so The month goes by, I'm trying to save my money, I'm trying to get that $1,000 ready to pay him back, and for whatever reason, I just can't do it. And so, four weeks goes by, five weeks, six weeks, and now it's embarrassing, I'm embarrassed because it's been more than four weeks. And so I go to him, and I say, Dad, look, I don't have the $1,000 to pay you back. I owe you 1,000, but I don't have it. And I'm sorry, but I just need more time. And so he listens to that, and he says, okay, I hear what you're saying, and then, He just quietly excuses himself from the room, and he goes into some other room, and about 15 minutes later, he comes back, and and he sits down, and I notice he has something in his hand, and he says, John, he said, first of all, you owe me a 1000 and you you say you can't pay it back, and so I just want you to know I'm forgiving the debt. You no longer owe me a 1000 I'm like, wow. 
you're going to forgive me. You're just going to let it go. I don't owe you a thousand. He said, I'm forgiving the debt. And not only that, I want to give you something. And he reaches out and I reach out and I take a check made out to me for $10,000. Now, dad, even though I don't owe you a thousand, if you gave me that 10,000 today later on, that might be kind of fun for me to have that experience. But he gave me the 10,000. Now, what would happen? What would have just happened in that transaction? Two things. He forgave the debt thousand dollars that I owed him. He said, you don't owe it anymore. And then he gave me his wealth. That's what Paul meant when he said that the father has justified us because of what Jesus has done. He canceled the debt. He washed away the sins. We don't owe God anything. And not only that, he now has covered us and clothed us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61 10, we have been covered in his righteousness and clothed in the robes of salvation so that when God sees us in the eyes of God, We are as righteous and as perfect as Jesus Christ. And so when Paul said, we just read over that, having been justified, some translations, some of the newer translations, having been made right with God, and then it says, by faith. How does this happen? By trusting Christ. Again, we place our faith where God placed our sin. On Jesus. When Jesus died on that cross, he had our sin. So that's, this is where everything happened. And so to be saved, I have to place my faith on him, on Jesus. And he forgives my debt and he gives me his wealth and I'm covered now in his righteousness. Now, have you ever done that? Has there been a time in your life when you made that transaction, the great exchange, you gave him your sin, he forgave it. He gave you his righteousness and you received and you're made right. You're justified with God. If so, you have scored a spiritual touchdown. And now it's time for the PAT, the point after touchdown, the extra kick. What did I say earlier? In the NFL, the PAT is no longer automatic. Kickers are missing the kick because it's not as easy anymore. But in the Christian life, the PAT, the point after touchdown, is automatic every single time. Now, it's interesting. Last Monday, in my own Bible reading, I was scheduled to read at Romans 5, which I did. And I honed in on these first five verses. And it seemed like throughout the day, I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the key words that follow our salvation. Now, I'm in the New King James. Different translations may say it slightly differently, and they do. But in the New King James, the three benefits that follow our salvation start with the letters P-A-T. And late last Monday night, I was walking around my house and I was thinking, how can I ever remember these three words? And peace and access and tribulation. And I'm thinking about it and it came to me. P-A-T. It's the point after touchdown. After we get saved, these are the automatic benefits that we can experience. And so that's why I'm saying, I think this will be memorable to you. Let's look at the P word first. Look in verse 2. Verse 1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, here comes the first benefit, through whom also, well, first of all, back in verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, that's the first word, the P word, peace. We have peace with God. One of the things that happens automatically, 100% of the time, in everybody's life who receives Jesus Christ is that we begin to experience Peace with God. Now, let's talk about that just for a second. What does peace with God mean? It means that our relationship with God has completely changed. Did you know that before you were saved, 
The Bible says you were an enemy of God. The Bible says that before you were saved, you didn't know it, and I didn't know it, and we didn't think of it this way, or we would have gotten saved even sooner. But before we were saved, we were at war with God, and God was at war with us. Why? Because God hates sin. And God is always in opposition and at war with sin. And so before you got saved, God looked at you and God saw all your sins and he saw all of my sins. And so he was opposed to that. He was at war with us. But when we receive Christ, now the sins are forgiven. Now we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. God looks at us and we're as righteous in the eyes of God as Jesus is. The war with heaven is over. And so peace with God in this context is not talking about peaceful feelings. We normally, when we talk about peace, we talk about calmness, tranquility, assurance, and all these things. And that's a wonderful thing that we can experience too. But here, he's not talking about feelings. He's talking about our status. Now, if we do have that right relationship with God, and if we have been saved, we have peace with God, more often than not, we should have those peaceful feelings. But let me say this to you today. It is possible for you to be in this room today or for you to be gathered around in your home watching this service, listening to this scripture being taught, it is possible that you could be saved and not be enjoying those peaceful feelings that God wants you to enjoy and yet you're still saved. Those peaceful feelings are known as the peace of God. The peace of God, Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven. In verse six, it says, be anxious for nothing, but you know, cast all your cares on God and so on. And in verse seven, it says, the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. Those are peaceful feelings. But Christians don't always have peaceful feelings. And so today, if you say, you know what? I don't have those peaceful feelings. That doesn't mean you're not saved because your salvation is not dependent on your feelings. Your salvation is dependent on this status, this peace with God status. And that comes when you put faith in Jesus Christ. I heard a pastor say this one time. I never have forgotten it. He said, our emotions, our feelings are the most shallow part of our lives. Salvation is the deepest work of God in our souls. And then he said this, God doesn't do the deepest work in the most shallow part. And so if you are trusting in Christ, what I'm saying to you today, what God is saying to you today, if your faith is resting in Jesus Christ, you are saved. You are at peace with God, whether you feel saved or not. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that my salvation is not dependent on my feelings. I'm glad my salvation is dependent on something much more secure than that, and that is on this status with God. And so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the P stands for. What does the A stand for? It stands for the word access. Look in verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into his grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so one of the benefits of being saved, not only do we have a right status with God, but we also have access to God. We can go to God any time of the day or night. You don't have to be in church. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go to a confessional booth. You don't have to go to a pastor. You don't have to be with anybody. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be on Sunday. Anytime, anywhere, you have access to God. He is your father. Just like my father, I have access to my father. I can call him whenever I want to call him. I can go to their house and visit whenever I want to do that. With the heavenly father, we have access. He's never too busy. 
He's never uninterested, and it's one of the benefits of being saved. And then in verse 3, we read about the third benefit, the T, the P-A-T, and we read it, and we think, now, wait a second. What is this? Look at verse 3. And not only that, Paul's saying, not only do you have peace with God after you get saved, and not only do you have access to God after you get saved, but notice what he says. Not only that, but we also glory or rejoice in tribulations. Now, I read that the other day, and I'm thinking, perhaps what you're thinking now, now, God, benefits of salvation, peace, yes. Access, definitely. Tribulation? How is tribulation a benefit of salvation? How am I supposed to, to rejoice because I'm having tribulation? Well, it's interesting. That word tribulation literally means pressure pressure. And in Bible times, it was the word used to describe the process, the pressure that took place when a grape was crushed so that wine could be produced. It was used also to describe the process that took place when an olive was crushed or pressed so that the oil could be produced. It, was, it went through a process of tribulation. It went through a time of pressure, went through a time of stress, a time of crushing. But it was a good thing because without the grapes being pressed, there would be no wine. Without the oil being pressed and, 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 and stressed and, and pressured like that, there would be no oil. And so this is why the Bible says, even the tribulation, listen, last night I was thinking about this this day and the people who would be here. And I was thinking, literally, God only knows the pressures that people will be feeling who are in the room today and who are home listening to this message. You feel like you are being squeezed. We've all been there. You're being squeezed. You're being pressed. You're being crushed. And you feel like, what in the world is happening in my life? I'll tell you what's happening. God, it's one of the results of salvation. God is using these things we go through in life to squeeze us and to pressure us and to, and to crush us even so that he can get out of us that which he has already put in us when we got saved. And yet so many times in life, the cares of this world and so on block all that. Notice, the, notice what happens when we get crushed. Look at back in verse three, knowing that tribulation Pressure, being pressed and, 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 and crushed, it produces perseverance, endurance, patience. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. You see, God wants you to have patience. He wants you to have character, to be more like Christ. And he wants you to have hope as you look for the future. But in order for you to have those things, sometimes God allows us to be squeezed, as it were, to be pressed, to go through tribulation. Now, as I was thinking about tribulation, I think tribulation falls under one of two categories. First of all, there's some tribulations, problems, and pressures that we could just say are common to everybody. Wouldn't matter if you were Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, it doesn't matter. We all have certain problems just because we live in an imperfect world. I experienced this last week. I, the house I live in, I've lived in for a long time now, the better part of 20 years, and it's not a big house. In fact, it's really more like a cottage, kind of a small house. But through the years, I have tried every now and then to do little projects along to update it and to keep things going well. And so for the last few years, I have been wanting to put new siding around my house. 
And I've been putting it off, putting it off, and I just finally decided to do it. So a couple of weeks ago, the company came, and if you've ever had through that process, the demolition, they're just in there pulling your house literally apart, and you think, good night. Well, I have a house when they finish this project. Well, they finished the siding the first week, and then last Monday, the lady I'd been working with from the company, she said, John, I want to come to your house. I want to bring some different paint cans, and I want to get somewhere on the back of your house, and I want to paint some different colors, and you can decide what color you want your house to be. And so she came over, got the paint, put it all up there. She said, you take, take a day or so, decide, and call me, tell me what you want, and they'll start painting later in the week. And so she did that fairly early last Monday morning. Well, after she left, I knew I was going to be home for a while, and so I got a load of clothes, and I threw it in the washing machine, and I let my clothes wash and doing some other things. And, and every few minutes, I would go and look through the window look on that wall where all the paint colors were and try to decide, do I want canvas tan? Do I want, you know, natural tan? Just decisions that uh, most men should never have to make in their life. <laughs> uh, natural linen. I'm trying to figure all this out and I'm looking at it. Well, while I'm studying these colors, I noticed that the, the wall she had painted was the wall where my washer and dryer are on the other side of that wall. And as I'm looking at this, I notice water is coming down my wall. And I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I thought, no, that ain't how it's supposed to be. That, you shouldn't have water coming down the outside of your wall. So I called my friend, Philip Johnson, who owns a plumbing company. And I said, I told him what happened. And I said, Philip, uh, I'm watching this. My clothes are being washed on the inside, but water's coming down on the outside wall. And, uh, and I don't think this is right. It shouldn't be this way. He said, John, that college education is really paying off for you, man. You figured that out. What he really said was, he said, John, we're on a three-day media fast. Call me on Thursday. That's what he said. I said, what kind of friend is this? He said, hey, I think what happened, when they were putting the, and those of you in construction know this, I had put plywood back behind the uh, siding. He said, when they were putting that starter board up there on the bottom, he said, I think they hit the drain line and that's why you got that leak. He said, I'll send a crew out tomorrow and they can fix it. And he diagnosed it over the phone. His crew fixed it the next day and everything's fine. Now here's the interesting thing about that story. Before that project started, I prayed and I said, now God, a lot of the time while they're working on this house, I'm not going to be here. And I said, God, even if I were, I'm not a construction guy. I'm, not, I, I'm interested in all that, but I'm not an expert in how you install plywood and the weather wrap and the window wrap and, and the side. I'm not, a, I'm not interested in all. I'm, not, I'm, I'm interested, but I'm not an expert in all that. I said, so God, I'm asking you to be the general contractor over this job. I prayed that. I said, you, you know all about it. You do it. You were a carpenter. You know how everything's supposed to be. And uh, well, anyway, when that leak happened on Monday, the first thought ran through my mind. And I said this to God. I said, God, I thought you were the general contractor. Why did you let that happen? Why didn't you tell that guy to nail higher, lower, right, or left? Why did you let him hit that drain line? You know what God said to me? He didn't say anything. Absolutely nothing. No answer to that. But as I went through the day, and I, later on that night, I was reading a devotional book, and the devotion said this. Sometimes God, allows us to go through challenges in our lives. And then it said this, that don't make any sense to us, but they serve a higher purpose. Why did God let the guy hit my drain line and me have to go through all that and rip out the sheetrock and now repaint the wall? I mean, why, why, why is all, I don't know. He never told me. But maybe 
God was allowing me to have a little pressure, a little problem, a little tribulation, a little crushing so that I would become a little more patient. I would say, well, God, this project's not going to get finished as quickly as I thought it was going to get finished. Or, or, you know, maybe, God, maybe you're trying to make a little more character in me so that I'll, I'll be sure to stay kind and, and faith and, 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 and all those good things and, and, and loving and so on, even when these problems are happening. Or maybe you're trying to give me hope that one day this will get fixed and I've got something better to look forward to. What I'm saying is in life, there's some problems that you're going to face. We can all relate to the drain line being hit. We're going to face these type things just because we live in an imperfect world. One of the reasons I believe God lets us face these things is just to remind us that although things on earth are imperfect, we are going to a perfect place one of these days. Think about this. If your life were perfect, if you always felt great, if everybody was always telling you how wonderful you are and everybody loved you and you never had any conflict and everything was just perfect and you had plenty of money and, and, and everything's great, why would you even want to go to heaven? Wouldn't you just say, man, I, got, I mean, it can't be any better than this. Sometimes God lets the drain pipe get busted so we can remember things on earth aren't perfect. Now, that's the first category, what I'm calling common problems. But there's a second category of tribulation and pressure and problems that, that are, that, and this category is unique to those of us who are saved. In other words, there's some problems that non-Christians won't ever face, that atheists won't ever have. But if you're saved, and not only saved, if you have devoted your life not only to trusting Christ, but if you are endeavoring to bring people to Jesus Christ so that they can be saved, I'm telling you, the Bible is telling all of us, you can expect some pressures in life that you would not otherwise have. That's why the scripture says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is a guarantee. If you are pursuing God and trying to bring others to God, you can expect persecution. And that's an interesting question. Have to ask this. Have you ever in your life, one time, been persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, I have to ask myself that question. And if the answer is no, what does that say about us? Because the Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if we've never suffered, suffered any persecution, you tell me, what does that say about you? What does that say about me? Well, I'll tell you what it says. It says we don't desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. Because if we did, and part of that is bringing other people to Christ, we can expect some persecution. We can expect some tribulation. On Friday, a friend of mine, Mike Wright, he, he uh, replaced the windows in my house several years ago, one of my other projects. And he had called me and said, John, I want to come over. I want to see your siding. I want to see how the whole project turned out. He came by and and we were talking. He was looking at everything. There we are in my driveway inspecting my house. And he said, John, I'm going to tell you something. He said, my wife and I did the three-day media fast last week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. He said it was life-changing for us. I don't know how many of you did it. I preached on that last week and I put a soft push on that. And I said, that's between you and God. I didn't come out here, you know, with a heavy hand trying to make everybody do that. I, I, I encourage you to pray about it and let God lead you. I think some did and maybe some didn't. But he said, John, my wife and I did it. He said, in fact, my wife extended it one extra day. She did it through Thursday. But she, he said, let me tell you what happened to me. He said, first of all, we're not big TV watchers anyway. We work all day. We come home at night. We have dinner. 
but we normally turn the TV on for an hour or two before we go to bed at night. He said, but during these three days, we didn't do that. And so instead of sitting back in the easy chair and turning the TV on and seeing the news and seeing the sports and watching the shows, he said, we read our Bible and we prayed. Here's what he said. He said, I can't explain it to you except to say that as we did that, during those three days, four for my wife, he said, for me, my mind became clear. He said, in fact, John, I don't think my mind has ever been so sharp and so focused as it is right now. He's telling me this on Friday based on what he had done the first part of the week. He said, I had an amazing experience one of those mornings, Tuesday or Wednesday morning. He said, I woke up laying on my back and he said, my hand, he said, I've never woken up like this before. He said, my hands were in the praying position. And he said, I just woke up praying. He said, I guess I just went to bed with God on my mind and somehow during the night subconsciously, my hands just went together and I just feel like I was somehow communing with God, even though I wasn't even awake. And he said, as soon as I woke up in the morning, I had this thought on my mind from God. He said, Mike, you've been saved for a long time. And he has. I baptized Mike 20 years ago. He said, you've been saved for a long time. There's no question about that. He said, but from this moment on, I don't want you, now this is what he felt, God, not audibly, but in his heart, God speaking to him. I don't want you to view your salvation as just a get out of hell pass. Not that I think Mike had ever viewed it that way, but I mean, God was saying, don't, don't view your salvation as, oh, I'm glad to be saved, I'm not going to hell. You know, the truth be known, I think most people that may be what salvation means to them. And don't get me wrong. I'm glad I'm saved because I'm not going to hell too. But friend, let me tell you something. There's more to being saved than not going to hell. Sometimes you hear somebody say, well, you know what? You need to get, maybe you hear a preacher say, hey, all you people out there, you may get, you need to get saved. You might die. Well, what is that? You're going to die. Preacher ought to say, you need to get saved. You may live. And while you live, you need Jesus Christ in your life every day. Mike said, God, put it on me. Don't just view your salvation as a get out of hell pass. He said, Mike, I want, and this is a businessman. He owns a window company. He said, I want you to be a light in the world in which you live. Your salvation means, yes, you don't go to hell, you go to heaven, but your salvation means more to that. Your salvation also means that you need to do everything you can to bring the people in your sphere of influence, in your circle of influence, to bring them to the salvation in Jesus Christ that you already have. In my driveway on a Friday morning, and he's saying to me, John, I want to be a light. Now, let me ask you a question. When Mike says to me, I want to be a light. I want to bring other people to Jesus. Let me ask you, A or B, does that make God happy or unhappy? What's the answer? Happy. Let me ask you a question too. Does that make the devil glad or mad? Mad. You think the devil's going to just sit back, put his hands in his pocket, say, okay, Mike, now, 20 years ago, you got saved, so I already lost you. You're not in my kingdom. You're in Christ's kingdom, so I've, I've lost out on you. But now I know that God during the media fast has told you to be a light. And so you're feeling strong about that. And so now 
You're going out into the community. He told me he reached out to somebody last week he hadn't talked to in about 40 years. He's going to have coffee with him this week. So now the devil's thinking, Mike, you're going to go out and share Christ with this person and share Christ with that. You think, do you think, does any rationally minded person think that the devil is going to just sit back and say, okay, go out now and devote your life to bringing other people to Jesus, bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of light, out of the devil's domain, into Christ's kingdom. While you do that, Mike, the devil would say, I'm going to just be sitting back with my hands in my pocket, wish you all the best, all the best for you, all the best for your family, hope it goes well, hope a lot of people get saved. You think the devil's going to do that? No, no. The devil goes about like a roaring lion, seeing whom he may devour. And when a person does what Mike is doing and saying, it's not just to get out of hell pass. I want to be a light. I want to bring others to Christ. That person can expect some pressure, some tribulations, some crushing, some problems that he or she would not have if they weren't doing that in their lives. And we might look at that as a bad thing and say, God, I don't want the, tr- I don't want the pressure. I don't want the stress. I don't- it could be discouragement. It could be people turning against you. It could be all kinds of things happening. And we look at that as a bad thing, but God says, don't look at it as a bad thing. Look at it as a good thing because just like that grape had to be crushed for the wine to come out, just like that olive had to be crushed for the oil to come out, you have to be crushed so that out of your life can come those qualities that are in Christ, perseverance, patience, endurance, character, And hope, how many people here today, as you look down the future of your life on earth, how many of you have hope? The psalmist said in Psalm 27 and verse 13, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. When you look to the next season of your life, do you have any hope? If you don't, God's looking at the situation. God said, you don't have hope. I want you to have hope. But in order to have hope, you've got to have the squeezing. You've got to have the pressure. You've got to have the tribulation. You've got to have the problem because that problem will squeeze hope out of you. When we get saved, it is the spiritual touchdown. After the spiritual touchdown, there's the PAT. There's the peace. There's the access. And there's the tribulation. And all of it works together for our good. Now, you still listen? Say amen. amen. Last Tuesday night of the media fast, I was in my house, in my chair, had read my Bible, had prayed, had read some other devotional books, and I was just sitting there in the quietness of my house. You live alone, the house is always quiet anyway. You turn the TV off and not on your phone, it's really quiet. And so there I was. And I had one of the most amazing and interesting experiences that I've ever had. It was like, and I'll I'll do a poor job explaining this, but it was like I felt covered by an invisible cloud. It was like I felt the presence of God And heard the voice of God, even though I couldn't see him or audibly hear him. And this is the thought that came to my mind, but deeper than my mind, this is the impression 
that came in my heart. Here, here's what it was in, in one sentence. It was like God said to me, it was like heaven said to me, you are known by God. Having been justified by faith, I trust Jesus. I'm known by God. Now, I've, I've known that I've been known by God ever since I came to the full assurance of my salvation. That's been a long time ago. So I didn't just get that last Tuesday night. I'm just saying for me, in a fresh way, I just had this impression, you're known by God. You know, there's a passage in the scripture that used to scare me to death in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said at the final judgment that many will say to me that, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name and shouldn't we be allowed to go into heaven? And Jesus said, truly I say, you know, I'm going to say in that day, depart from me. I never knew you. I thought, oh, I can't imagine anything worse than to hear that. And then God led me years ago to put my faith where God placed my sin on Jesus Christ. And when I did that, he forgave my sin. He clothed me in his righteousness. He filled my heart with a peace that I had never known before, a peace that passes all understanding, peace like a river. And then God led me to Nahum 1-7, the Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who trust in him. And I remember I read that verse. He knows those who trust in him. Now think about this. If God knows us, he's not ever gonna tell us that he never knew us. How could God tell somebody he never knew you if he knows you? And he knows you if you trust Christ. And I just had this invisible cloud, this deep peace, this feeling of peace, you're known by God. And then, in my sanctified imagination, I went out in my mind, or I went up to heaven. And I started thinking about what is happening in heaven tonight. And I started thinking about people in our congregation and some of my dearest friends who in recent times have moved from earth to heaven and what they must be doing in heaven now as they're walking those streets, talking with Jesus, listening to Jesus, hugging Jesus and the presence of Jesus. And I began to think about a man named Felton Hayes. And I began to think about Charles Cowles. And I began to think about Bill Yeager. And certainly not to make it sad, Joe, but I think about Janice, one of the dearest friends I ever had in a such an important part of our family. And I begin to think about these people who it doesn't seem like very long ago were as close to me as you are to me. When I would preach on Sundays, when it was my time to preach, Janice would sit by Joe. And when I would preach, she would never take her eye off of me. She was listening. She was absorbing. She was saying, give me the word of God. And she's moved from an environment where she received the word of God to where she is now with Jesus Christ, the living word of God. And I'm thinking about my friends. And I'm imagining, what are they doing up there? What are they talking about? And in my sanctified imagination, I imagine these friends of mine saying to Jesus, you know, Lord, when I was on earth, I went to First Baptist in Pasadena. And Jesus saying, yeah, I know that. I saw you sit through those sermons so patiently and so kind. I know you were there. Well, you know, Lord, I imagine some weeks John did the preaching. And he would tell us what the, in talking about John. 
And here's, what, here's the thought that came to me last week. When Janice or Charles or Felton or Bill or many others say to Jesus, Jesus, you know, John used to do some, you know, here's what I imagine. I imagine Jesus turning to them with a smile on his face and saying these words, I know John. (laughs) I know John. He's trusting in me, and I know him. I'm asking you today, we're talking about being justified by faith. We're talking about having peace with God, access to God, good things coming out of the problems we face. I'm asking you today, are you known by God? Are you known in heaven? If one of your family members or friends this afternoon walking with Jesus mentioned your name, what would Jesus say in response to that? Would he smile? (laughs) I know him. Oh, I know her. They're trusting in me, and I know them. Or would Jesus say, hmm, I don't know him. I don't know her. Not in a personal way. With our heads bowed and eyes closed today. You don't ever want to hear Jesus say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. How horrible, how tragic, and how final, and how unnecessary. Because today, if you will place your faith in Jesus, you will begin a relationship with him. And he will know you. And he'll never say those words to you that he never knew you. Because you can't tell somebody you never knew them if you currently know them.